We're back to the Neil Haley Show and also uh, the Love Is Celebrity Podcast. I'm excited to welcome from Kim Sorrell, author of Love Is. Kim, how are you? And I know you're excited about your guest, our guest, and I'm excited about the film because I'm a huge fan of George Foreman. I mean, again, he's a gentle giant like myself, who's 6'10", Kim. So this is kind of like, you know, I'm a little taller than George, but I, I always loved him as a boxer. Yeah, right. What a classy guy, right? So uh, with an interesting life. So yes, Neil, I'm doing great. Good to see you. And I am very excited about our guest, George Tillman Jr., who is a wave maker, a groundbreaker. I am so impressed, George, with your resume, the things that you have done. You have uh, done some things to really pave the way for some incredible films uh, that are um, wonderful for the black community, even though I hate to say they're films for the black community, but some of the films you've done, certainly that's the, you've drawn so much traffic from that. But I feel like we're turning a corner and things are becoming more for everybody. And you've done just some incredible things. This George Foreman, obviously, I mean, everybody's interested in George Foreman and his career and that had to be an experience, but I'm so curious about you because here you are, this Chicago guy. I'm from Michigan, Midwestern, and uh, won some awards. You've just, you've just done it. I'm just so impressed with everything that you've done, uh, the stories that you've portrayed. You know, just talking about real people and real lives, and and making people feel like they're part of the story. So welcome, welcome, welcome to our show. Thank you. Thank you for having having me. I appreciate it. I'm glad to be here. Yeah. So this what it what's been big for you? Like, I'm just curious. I mean, it, just because you've done so much and so much good and uh, tearing down walls and the first of this and the first of that, which should have happened years ago, but you made it happen. And uh, what's what do you consider your biggest achievement? Like what's made you just pursue, pursue, pursue? Well, you know, just from watching other, you know, like you were saying, I love telling stories that can really help entertain first, but then help other people. Like I remember when I was a kid, I saw Barry Levinson film Avalon and Avalon was about his family as immigrants moving to America. I was so blown away, even though that family was about the Jewish immigrants. And I just felt like it was very inspiring for me to tell my story with Soul Food about my family after Sunday dinners, after coming from church, my grandmother doing all the cooking. And even though it was African-American characters, it was fun and it was for everybody. So that's what I always wanted to do with tell stories of, uh, that can move people, get people to change their life and get people to think. So that keeps me going every movie, you know what I mean? So that's how I've been feeling as a director. And what do you think as a director kind of putting your whole vision into it, specifically enough of some of the films you've done, TV shows you've done to kind of put your stamp on it as a director? Because that's the thing that people don't understand is a director takes the writer, producer, everybody put this together and make it a vision, your vision, when it finally goes on, on, on film or on TV, right? Yeah, I think the key is the stamp is what are you trying to say? You know, like the film I did years ago with Robert De Niro, Cuba Gooding Jr., Men of Honor, 
That was about the first African-American Navy diver. And that whole thing is about, you know, never giving up and really choosing that. And that's what's sitting down with the individual and putting in what is the theme that people can walk away. So with George Foreman, the new movie, I was sat down with George and I was like, wow, change is it's a powerful thing for him. So that was the stamp that I was able to put on this film. Mm-hmm. Yes, and I am so excited. It's coming out very soon. I am sure that it's going to do great. You've got some wonderful cast going, and it is just an incredible story. This man that was an angry guy, right? I mean, he was a pretty angry guy, which maybe as a boxer you need to be, I don't know. But uh, he changed his life, just changed completely. It seems like uh, that would be a difficult thing to really grab hold of in just a couple hours on film. What what was that like? That was amazing because it was true. When I was a kid, I was rooting for Ali in the Foreman versus Ali. I wanted Ali to beat the big bad George Foreman. And then like years later after college, I'm rooting for him to fight Michael Moore. <laughs> yeah. like, he's a nice guy. Is this the same guy who created the grill? You know, and then when I when I sat down with him, it's just that that experience in Puerto Rico that we have in the movie when he fought um, Jimmy Young. He, he people say he had heat stroke. George said it was more. I died and I came back. I saw something different that completely changed my life. And that experience was the one thing he said, you got to get right in the movie. That was the most important thing that he wanted to make sure was right. And from there, he started believing in other things other than himself. He became selfish to selfless. So I love that importance of how to change that really made me look at myself. But at the same time, I had a great time as a director. I had all these great fights with Ali. I mean, George did some crazy things where he fought five guys in one ring to prove I'm just as bad as Ali. Those are some interesting things about the journey in life, you know? And I think he saw, specifically enough, when he made that change, how Ali loved people. And he had to do the same in a way, but in a, di- in a different transformation. George Foreman's way different than Ali in so many ways. What did George tell you about his, like, what he thought about Ali? And also, specifically enough, did he take any of his charisma later on and, and kind of not copy it, but emulate some of it? I think what was going on was he felt like during the fight, he, I said, were you afraid of Ali? He says, no, I wasn't afraid of Ali. I was afraid of Joe Frazier. And I said, really? But you're not Joe Frazier out six times. He said, but that was the problem. I was afraid of him. I wasn't afraid of Ali. I really believe that I can get him with one punch. And he just kept going on and on and on. I couldn't believe he was still around in the eighth round. And he said one of the things that he learned, and I have it in the movie, is, is, is a moment right before the fight, George is putting his hand on a rope and he looks underneath his arms to look at Ali. And Ali is praying. You know, he's being spiritual. And I think the spirituality is what really woke him up and really saw to get him something to have a pattern in his life. You know, and I think that's something that uh, we all need sort of in our own lives, just to believe, to help, to think better. And I think that's what made him more lovable. A different spirit was just there. I I love that. I love that. And I I totally agree. It's uh, a whole different life when you are interested when you're open, when you're seeking, when you know that there's more to life. And early on in this interview, you mentioned the dinners, Sunday dinners after church and and the things of that your family did. And so uh, faith is, is a thing apparently in your family's life and something that you grew up with. 
and then something that's been such a big part of George's life. So how did you how did you relate to all that? I was able to relate when I really sat down and I really started breaking down the movie into the physicality in terms of why things happen. I really wasn't able to figure out and it all came down to one thing. If you really look back when George Foreman fought Ali in 1974, at that point, Ali already lost to Frazier. He already was slower. He was a different fighter. And George is 25, 24, 25 at the time, strong, young, knocked everybody out. How would Ali was able to do that, a belief. And then at 46, George was able to do the thing. You know, and a kid coming from the Fifth Ward with nothing, his whole family had to eat one burger. They had to share their food. Oh and the teacher wouldn't even look at him because of how he was dressed. And then later, this guy would be the heavyweight champion and a grill guy who's successful. Faith, belief in something. Um, and I have to remind that of myself. Every time I do a movie, I'm like, oh, wow, can I get through this? You know, this movie is so hard. Just keep believing, keep pushing. So that was the thing that came down to one single thing, as you just talked about, Kim. You just have to believe and put it into something else that can make you get through this and win. Totally. Now, Kim has a question she asked all our celebrity guests about love. She wrote a book about love. Go ahead, Kim. Yeah. So, um, Georgia, I was diagnosed with cancer a few years ago. And then four months later, my husband was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer and died six weeks after that. And it made me question some things. And the real meaning of love was one of them. That seems to be this, you know, I don't know. I think you put 10 people in a room, you can get to 10 different answers to what love is. And so I, I lived it out and wrote a book about it. Love is. And so love is, is huge. Love's universal and love's involved in everything. And I, I know it's got to be a big part of your life because uh, your passion has got to come from love, right? Am I right about that? Like, what what is love to you? Love is, to me, and it's something that, you know, I've been thinking about for the last 12 months, you know, because when you make a movie, it takes a lot of people around you. You can't do it by yourself. And love is continuing to open yourself up to other people's flaws other people's successes, other people's happiness, other people's sadness. And it's a continuing thing. To learn how to forgive is a continuing thing as well. And that's something I've been learning is not let things drag me down. Just happy, be happy. I have to remind myself, be happy where you are. I always look at another director and I say, I want to be better. I want to be like him. It's just like, just be happy what life has provided. Enjoy each day as it comes. It's just hard. Love is taking each day and making the best out of it and making everybody and yourself happy around it. That's how I'm learning every day. You know, that's powerful. I love that. Now, George, what is your goal for the film? What do you want the film to achieve the most? Like you want people to learn most from this film? Well, first of all, I mean, George said he wanted, only reason he wanted to do the movie so people can be able to take his story and see that there's something else out there other than self. And I really, truly want people to come to this movie, April 28th. You know, first of all, it's always hard sometimes. Um, you got these big Marvel movies. So I'm always competing with the big Marvel movies. So everybody, please come out. But when you come out to see the movie, you will walk away in believing that anything is really possible, no matter how obstacles are. Just keep pushing, keep trying, and keep loving. And I think George became a champion, not because... He wanted the material things because he was doing it for the right reasons. 
That's what I want people to walk away. And the movie is made for all families. You know, I made it it's PG 13. I made it for everyone to come because a lot of people know George as the grill, but they don't know him as the boxer. Many people didn't know that he was a minister. So mm-hmm. that's a big life. And I really want people to really be surprised. That's fantastic. And yeah. and so you said April 28th, it premieres. Is it going to be in theaters for a while or how's it working? Yeah, it's going to be in theaters everywhere. April 28th. The more people talk and go see the movie, the more it'll stick around. We want to stick around in the theaters before it goes to, uh, you know, the streaming service. So please tell everybody to come see wow. the movie. We appreciate it, George. Thanks, Kim. All right. Thank All right that was a special simulcast of the Neil Haley Show and love is take care, guys. Who fell on her bicycle, in other words, and it didn't have a seat. So the um, top of the bicycle went into her vagina. And that was the story I got. So on my way to the hospital, I'm thinking, as I'm driving, what is this? What is the real problem here? Because it didn't sound realistic at all to have an accident like that. Well, as it turns out, she was sexually molested by her older brother. Hi, everyone, and welcome to a special simulcast podcast. That uh, It's the Neil Haley Show with a podcast called Doc Tales with Royal Doc Alan Lindemann. Uh, Doc, uh, you're branching out. You know, we were talking a lot about your medical career, but now we're going to interview some people, right? And you're talking about all these great tips you provide for pregnant women, but now it's time for a new podcast, right? Well, that's what we're looking for. It's not actually, I mean, it's new, but it, and it's its in addition. It's not a replacement. So, yeah, we're happy about this. Thank you, Neil. All right. So let's talk about we're gonna, who, what types of people we're going to interview and how you're going to kind of tell stories throughout these uh, interviews, which, and really give your opinion more so we get to know, really know the true rural doc, you know? Well, certainly I have a lot of opinions and some of them are unpopular. But DocTales actually started about, uh, I'd say probably 20 years ago. Uh, We actually had a website on it, and it was a story about patients and their encounters with the medical system. And uh, sometimes it gets to be complicated in ways you wouldn't even imagine. I'm sure. I couldn't even imagine what you mean by that, the the different things, but you saw things in the medical field that you were blown away, not understanding what you're getting yourself into, right? Right. I I can give you a couple examples. Uh, One of them was a young woman. She's about 25 years old. She came in to me. Well, actually, she presented to the emergency room 15 weeks pregnant. She had gotten a new um, blazer and it was rolling toward a brick wall. And so she wanted to protect the bumper. So she placed herself between the blazer and the brick wall and crushed her pelvis when she was pregnant. So we had a lot of problems with that. We had bleeding. We had a a dead baby. We had, um, and so I went, we took her to the operating room and the, uh, um, trying to stop the bleeding. And the anesthetist or the anesthesiologist says, you have 15 minutes to close her and I'm waking her up. So we really couldn't complete our procedure. And she was in the hospital over the weekend. I gave her seven units of blood and sent her off to uh, to St. Paul eventually, uh, which is where I had my residency. The nice thing is she lived, but it was uh, kind of a one thing after the next. 
Um, that was a problem for her. Wow. The stories, you, you can't believe them, right? That, that they happen, right? And that's why you started Doc Tales to begin with. But when we talk to, um, when we're going to be talking to doctors, they're going to tell these stories about how we're lacking a lot of resources available to have good health care. Well, you know, this is one of the problems we have with healthcare deserts and obstetric deserts. And of course, this hospital I was practicing at wasn't a total desert, but there were things we didn't have. And one of them was good anesthesia. Oh, man. No, that's just not good to know good anesthesia. And, <laughs> you know, you guys carry these medical, you know, medical insurance, malpractice insurance, things like that. Are hospitals good at covering things up in ways to make sure that they can, they don't end up getting sued? Well, every year this problem gets worse. You know, I talked to one of my nurses um, a few years ago. She said she they spent a lot of time in her training making sure that the nurses could lateralize responsibility or guilt. In other words, direct the guilt and the responsibility away from the hospital and onto the provider. That's just cra That's crazy stuff uh, for sure. And uh, tell me one more, another story. Uh, Cause again, I think that when people go to doc tales, the website's soon going to be up. People can check out some of these stories. Again, hopefully we republish a lot of them. They'll be great. Well, thank you. Yes, I do have many more stories, but the one that comes to my mind now is a little bit tricky. This is, uh, I got a call uh, to the emergency room, and this was a different hospital. And the doctor calling me said, oh, we have a young girl, a seven-year-old girl who fell on her bicycle. In other words, and it didn't have a seat. So the um, top of the bicycle went into her vagina. And that was the story I got. So on my way to the hospital, I'm thinking as I'm driving, what is this? What is the real problem here? Because it didn't sound realistic at all to have an accident like that. Well, as it turns out, she was sexually molested by her older brother. And uh, the top of her vagina was broken. I had to do surgery on her to close that. And the biggest problem was that we had a hard time getting anybody to recognize that it was a problem. In other words, we had trouble getting social service involved. And then she went home, and unfortunately, she went back into that same situation. And I, so I called the police. I said, what kind of protection do I have for this man? What kind of protection do my children have? Because he was calling my house on my children's phone. And they said the same protection that we have, which is nothing. So we were kind of afraid for a while what was going to happen. And about six months later, I got a phone call from him saying, you're right, Dr. Lindemann, I did that. Um, but in the meantime, the family had moved out of state. And of course, the uh, criminal part of this would only go as far as the border of the state. So um, the as it turned out, we got the young girl fixed up from a physiologic point of view, but I don't know what happened to her as far as a mental point of view, and I don't know what was ever done to her brother. So, yeah, you see things that you'd like not to see. Oh, absolutely, you do, and it's 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 sad, isn't it, really, what happens? Well, it's sad and it's scary, and it's an example of what sometimes doesn't work 
in healthcare. All right. Well, the best place people can find information now is at ruraldocallen.com and also safepregnancy.com and now doctails. Dot, where is it doctails.com? Yes, it is. It's, it's doctails.com, Neil. <laughs> All right. Well, we appreciate it. The inaugural podcast guests galore coming. Be ready. And thanks again, Doc. Thanks a lot, Neil. All right. That was the World Doc Allen uh, Doc Tales podcast. Take care, guys. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the special simulcast of the Neil Haley Show and Celebrity Interviews live from the Grotto with Greg Hanna. Greg, what's going on, man? How are you? I'm doing amazing, Neil. How about yourself? Fantastic. And our guest today is New York Times bestselling author, Christopher Rice. Christopher, thanks for stopping by. We're going to talk about Sapphire Storm and much, much more. Christopher, thanks for stopping by. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. All right. So, Christopher, I'm going to jump really quickly and specifically into... Uh, my first question is, did you always want to be a writer? Was that something you wanted to do, be an author? No, I wanted to be an actor and I failed at it. So I had to become a writer, basically. Is what happened. I went off to college thinking I was going to take the theater department by storm and the theater department had different ideas. So I went back to my dorm room and I started writing because it was an outlet that nobody could really take away from me. They didn't have to read it or publish it. But I could sit at that computer and I could go off into my own world and just and have that sort of creative connection that I wasn't getting on stage anymore. Wow. And that is true. Like we figure out something else to do. For example, I was a pro wrestler and I was semi good, never made to the WWE. But uh, once I found out that it's better for me to be an entertainer with the mic than in the in the wrestling ring and teaching. So I kind of figured out my craft the same way for sure as well, Christopher. Uh, one other question before Greg has a question for you. Uh, what kind of was that big break? How, was it easy for you to get published or did, was it a challenge at first? You know, the, the fact of the matter is that it was pretty easy for me to get published because I had a, a famous last name in the industry. And I think it opened a lot of doors for me at the beginning. And I think there's no point in not being honest about that. I, would I still be around today only on the basis of that last name? I doubt it. But I think that, you know, it, it, the book was published when it was and the way it was, I think largely as a function of the fact that, you know, my mother was Anne Rice. She was very well known in the business and all of that. But I think once you get that opportunity, you got to keep producing stuff that people actually like or else they ask you to leave, you know? So, so far, I get to stay. So, fingers crossed. Go ahead, Greg. Your question. Well, well, that's Christopher, you just killed my first question. It was, hey, you in relation to Anne Rice. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's great. So, let me ask you a quick question about that. Did, did you like the portrayal of uh, her books in, in movies, like with Brad Pitt and those guys? Was that good? 
you heard the interview with the Vampire movie? But with yeah, Brad Pitt, I Bomb was a fan. Bomb was a fan of that movie. Cool, cool. That's great. My my wife's a fan of your mom's. Uh, so I have to tell her that, which is great. So tell us about your new book. Um, like what inspired you to write it? You know, what kind of audience you're trying to reach? What, what's, what's the impact behind it that you want to get across to the readers? Well, you know, romance uh, writing is, is romance fiction is one of the most popular genres out there commercially. I mean, it probably outsells every other genre of fiction there is. And for many years, I didn't know about it because I didn't think anybody like me was writing it. I didn't think they were writing romance novels about two guys. And over the recent years, it's become more and more inclusive and people are trying different things. And I just wanted to write this sweet, happily ever after story. You know, so much of what I have written over the course of my career has been really dark. It's been really violent. It's dealt with a lot of really tough issues. It's been stuff from psychological thrillers to just straight up horror novels. You know, I've written a couple of those. And I'm, I'm kind of a dark guy, you know what I mean? Like, I have a dark mindset. So the idea, it was almost a challenge to be able, can I write this sweet, happy love story um, about two guys? And it started that way with book one. And by the time we get to this book, which is also a standalone, it's really like full-bore nighttime soap opera. It's like Yellowstone crossed with Dynasty from the 80s crossed with the love boat. It's like... A mashup, but I think, you know, the best writing advice I ever got came from my mother, and it was write the book you want to read. Not the book you think will be popular, not the book you think is going to sell, write the book that you want to read. And so I, I basically, I did that with Sapphire Storm. All right, Greg, you're in it because we're almost at a hard stop, Greg. I'm going to let you have another question. That question is what he's learned in life. Oh, ahead, my big question. Okay. So Chris, I always ask this question of every guest, you know, of our show. And uh, so tell me, what's the biggest thing? in life that you've learned? The biggest thing in life that I've learned, other people are not paying as much attention to me as I think they are, and I can be myself more than I allow myself to be. Uh, Excellent. That's great. And so where do you see, Christopher, now you going uh, with writing? Do you think some of your books will be potential movies or TV shows? Are you? I think that's a goal of every author, isn't it? But I, but I have to say, you got to be careful because that process can really pull you away from from the work that you love doing. You know, Michael Crichton once said he feels like he could have written four novels in the time it took him to get Twister made into a movie because he wrote that movie back in the 90s. And so I, I think that's always now nobody's invited me to write Twister. So <laughs> if they did and they had a nice deck, I would I would take it. But I think you got to you got to stay connected with where your passion really is. And I think for me, I, I love producing and I love collaborating, but I really also love being in my own world. And uh, so that, that, and that's the only thing that really offers me that is writing books. And that's, that's fantastic. And writing books and learning from that process and continuing to become better and better at your craft. Do you write all the time? Is it pretty much a full-time thing for you writing? I really, I really do. If I'm not actually putting words on the page, you know, not increasing the page count of the manuscript, I'm taking notes on plot. I'm living in a, I'm almost constantly living in an alternate reality. It can be a little bit dangerous, especially if you're driving, you know, like I'm, I'm living in a story. that's really a version of life that I prefer to be, you know, it's not full on delusional, but it's close. Well, Christopher, we appreciate it. Again, everyone needs to check out your latest book, Sapphire's 
uh, Sapphire uh, Cove, the Sapphire Cove series, and check out Sapphire Storm. I appreciate it, Christopher, and thanks for stopping by, man. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. All right, that was celebrity interview from the Grotto with Greg Hanna. Take care, guys. special simulcast of the neil haley show and celebrity interviews live from the grotto with greg hannah greg what's going on man how are you doing fantastic neil how are you fantastic and our guest today i'm so excited uh we all know her as hot lips Hulahan, loretta swit loretta thanks for stopping by how are you i'm terrific thank you just terrific all right loretta let's kind of jump right into this specifically enough and tell me specifically enough uh, a little bit about how you got your big break with MASH. How did that happen? Oh, I wish it was an exciting story. I was already doing uh, leads on television and, and really uh, important shows, the, the big shows of that era. Gunsmoke, one of the longest lasting our programs and a great, you know, Jim Ardez, that whole, that whole set, the, the cast and um, <clears throat> Millie Stone. Anyway, that Maddox, Jim, uh, Mike Connors, very popular, very, very warm, wonderful actor and um, Hawaii Five O. I did about three of them. So, so I was there and, um, <laughs> what did they say? We're there at the right time. Uh, it was a good time for me because this was going to be on CBS. I had just done a uh, a leading role on a new show with Glenn Ford called Cades County, and we did it at Fox, and it was for CBS. So the people there involved uh, were not unfamiliar with me or my work. Which was which was wonderful because they were fans, and so when when the uh, show, the idea of the show and, and so forth came up, uh, I was uh, the top of the list to, to meet with for the role. I was in Hawaii with Jack Lord. I was doing a two-part Hawaii show, and uh, I missed all the kind of flap and hubbub that you know about the show. They saw, I've told hundreds of uh, people, women, and um, when I came back, I was it was sort of at the tail end of casting. I remember my, uh, here's a piece of trivia. I was going to say, my agent said, have you seen MASH? And I said, no. And he said, oh, wonderful. Well, anyway, you know, but um, I 
I, I never saw it. I hadn't seen the film, and then I got the part. So I thought, well, I'm not going to see it now. You know, not, I don't want to see it now. And so I, I've never seen the film. And <laughs> it's kind of a really funny piece of trivia. Um, so I went up and met Gene Reynolds and Larry Gelbart. Um, none of us could have expected to be a part of the phenomenon that MASH has become. But I, because I, I think I would have been very nervous. <laughs> I think I think it would have been very nervous. But I was not. I had fun. They were fun. Everybody was relaxed. There was no script. There was no script. You were going up for a job that wasn't created yet. <laughs> I said, it's, a, it's kind of getting a, a, an interesting sort of story now. But um I, there was nothing um, exciting or different. It was just going up to see these people about a job, so to speak. And then, and, and they liked me. They, um, uh, my agent knew that I was strong up for the role. And we had an, um, a, a, a film. We had an offer for a film at Universal, and the dates conflicted with the shooting of the pilot. So my agent called and said um, um, they, they should let him know as soon as they've decided because we have an offer that is a good one. It was a um, wonderful film. So um, um, they said, and when he made the call out of courtesy, Gene Reynolds took the call and said, this is amazing. We were just going to call you. We've decided to go with Loretta. And that was it. <laughs> I told you it wasn't a great story. It just, it, I went for a job and I got it. <laughs> so, uh, but I, I do think um, I was uh, very, very blessed by, by um, um, being known uh, by not the network and the studio and, uh, all, all, play, all people considered. All they all thought, gee, you know, Loretta Swift would be great in this role, or whatever they, whatever they thought. But I mean, it was, um, wow, great, you know. Well, that's fantastic, and I know I really enjoyed watching, you know, you and the rest of the crew on those shows over the years. Um, do you have any like fun stories? You know, I love to ask people, uh, you know, behind the scenes. You guys are acting. You probably have some great stories. What's one story that might stick out? Come on, rethink that question. Eleven seasons with the butts of this, this great bunch of men. Uh, do I have any fun stories? Are you serious? Is that a serious question? It, it was serious. I, I asked for what's the one that sticks out the most in your mind, Loretta. What? Good, great. Right. Every day was a fun story. <laughs> um, we were, were all, then and now, such close friends, family. It was a pleasure to to go to work, in quotes, work. You know, you're doing what you love with people you care about. <laughs> and you're working with people who are incredible. There, it didn't come better than Larry Gelbart, for example. What a What a talent gene reynolds with his 
wealth of experience. And so I can go on and on about people. They were just best, the best. You couldn't help but um, be infected by that, doing your best work. You're working on material that you loved. You're, I, it, no, it was really um, a blessing. We, I, I've always called it the miracle of MASH in my in my art book. Uh, I give a, a page to MASH, and I, I have a beautiful lithograph that was given to us on the 10th year, the 10th uh, anniversary. And uh, we it was a surprise. We did not pose for the painting, and, um, and it's beautiful. And um, it's in my art book where I talk about the phenomenon that it became uh, just, uh, and yet thinking back, I remember the first couple of days when we were just meeting and getting together and so forth. It was, there was magic around. I just, everybody fell in love. It was, it was so beautiful to, um, to be with people you loved every day and, uh, and doing what you thought was a wonderful, a wonderful show, a wonderful job. I remember Wayne one day said, um, People say to him, he said, they say, keep up the good work. And he said, Loretta, I feel like I'm on a football team or something. But um, the audience so appreciated uh, the, the ensemble and, and the work and the, um, uh, the talent involved. And I, it was just uh, a miracle. A beautiful little miracle. I, all of us feel that way, by the way. I'm echoing so many things that we have as a group discussed with interviewers. We all felt blessed by this happening. These particular people coming together at that particular time with those, those particular production values and those particular gifted writers. And, you know, it was, it was, uh, I call it the miracle of MASH. It's just, uh, and I and I feel strongly about that still, many years later. You know, and that's so interesting when you talk about the miracle of MASH. The show in general, it, it was so popular. What do you think made it so popular that, you know, the finals, final episode drew such an audience? What do you think made people talk so much about the show? And you have so many fans from years and years. It just continues to live on, MASH. Uh, yes, it is. Um, uh, it has been passed on from generation to generation. So you start getting, um, uh, very soon afterwards, you start getting letters from children of children and children's children of children. And it keep, and it continues. My mom, my grandma, my would always watch the show, and we would sit and watch the show, and they'd say, watch this, watch this. And so the grandparents, and then the great-grandparents, uh, and it was like a torch getting passed along. I call it um, the Global Mash family, but it really is. It's uh, uh, globally so uh, popular, not only popular, but revered, revered, and they feel about the cast, about the, those people, and I don't say characters because, you know, even though we were playing characters, they were real people in that situation. They just uh, relate to us. They, you know, when, when we finished the show, we'd get letters about what everybody thought would happen 
to each individual character on the show, and I think this would happen. And it, it, the, our mail was just so beautiful. There were things that just uh, should should have been published, you know. I mean, they're just beautiful things that people got from the messages in the show. And I think they tackled some very uh, innovative problems that, that hadn't been touched before. At, at any rate, uh, there's just this one particular thing that I want to tell you about. And it was toward the end of the show, the last maybe weeks, we had a kind of big billboard where we started to tack up our mail so that everybody could share it. You know, if I got a piece of mail, it was to me, but it was about all of us. Anyway, we wanted to share that with the cast. And so there was this one simple note and um, it read, Dear MASH people, thank you. Thank you for the laughs and the tears. Thank you for letting me feel. And that said it for me. People felt they turned on the, the, the show and they didn't know what to expect. We were always a little bit of a surprise. They didn't know if they were going to laugh or cry or do both simultaneously, which is really a feat. And I just, uh, we, we all felt very close to our audience and it became family and it continues to this day. It did, the, the mail still reflects that. The autograph shows, Jamie and I attend a lot of the autograph shows and it is beautiful. Their, their, their response talking about this, that, you know, that show and they're still quoting this. It's, it's a, a family and it's a phenomenon. And I have to tell you, it's a beautiful way to live. To oh. hear those things from people, people, elderly people telling me how much I influenced their lives, how many nurses out there became nurses because of Margaret Houlihan, because being influenced by her, her ambition, her integrity, her power, her strength, her flaws, her humor, her all of it. And, it, and I speak for me, for my character, but everybody all the characters in the show, uh, my God, Jamie, people worship this man. I mean, it just is, and I cannot think of any other actors that, who could have, like, do could do Klingy, Klinger, or uh, um, I, it, they were just, Bill Christopher, I used to tell Bill that his portrayal of Father Mulcahy, I was convinced that he actually brought people back to the church. You know, <laughs> he was just, he was the kind of priest you want to have. You want to feel like you meet him, you have a drink, and you can talk to him, you can tell him this, that, or the other thing about yourself without feeling that it was a, quote, confession. You know, it, he was just uh, remarkable. And uh, and I felt that way. Gary Berghoff, gosh, that... You know, he was married with children when he's doing radar. And, and I always thought I was talking to a little kid. <laughs> he just was, he was little radar and young and the youngest, the baby. And, the, and um, 
he was always, always in character in a, a shoot with the six of us, let's say. Uh, there was an expression that Robert Wise used for shooting Julie Andrews. He said, are you doing a crowd scene? When in doubt, cut to Julie. Because she was 150% always there. You know, not saying anything or doing anything, but she, and that was, that was Gary Burgo. He's just so total. Yeah. Whether he was fixing his glasses or his little radar cap, he was never out of character on that set. It was just, it was amazing. And that, and I can, I have little stories like that about each of those people that I, that I worked with. And they're just so special, Alan and Mike and, and, and then, of course, the people we lost were body blows. I mean, Harry Morgan, if you had to say to the cast when we were flying, uh, okay, we know you all love each other, but who's your favorite? Come on, who's your favorite? We wouldn't have any problem about that. Everybody would say Harry. Mm. Everybody would say Harry. I know they would. Uh, and because he was everything to all of us. He was father, he was priest, he was confessor, he was colleague, he was, I mean, and of course, his acting chops. He could he could turn you from laughter to tears in a, in a second. That was his thing, his tray. This is what he did. And uh, remember, we did a, a show about um, an oath that he and his comrades from World War One had made. They had a bottle of 100-year-old brandy, and they passed it from one to the other as they demised. And he comes back to MASH after uh, being in Tokyo. And he has this box with him, and he invites, invites us into his tent to toast his fallen comrades. Now, there's Harry of a certain age of an incredible experience in the era of movie making he had done 110 movies black and white mostly and mostly classic movies i mean he just was his, the, the list of movies that that he was in these and and all of these great familiar actors the, the you know the henry fondas and the john howdyacks yeah. this incredible resume he had done something like seven or eight television series. So his wealth of, of being was with us. He was like a treasure. He was a, a treasury. And, that, that, uh, and his humor, I can tell you, Mike Farrell, <laughs> we were all in Harry's office. It was the last shot of the day. <laughs> and Harry was his inimitable self making us laugh so hard. And Mike was lying on the floor with tear, tears rolling down his cheeks. I mean, it, it, it just, you had to be there. Yeah, no. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. You know, and this was, so when you say, do you have any uh, any little funny stories or something, you know, we have Loretta, you, Loretta, you nailed it. You nailed it with some stories. <laughs> now, Greg, what are your memories of MASH growing up watching it? Greg. Well, <laughs> just enjoying it every day, which was great. I, I got to see it when it was airing and I got to see the reruns, you know, later in college. Um, so it was just always there, you know, what 
especially in college, and I always had the TV on when you go to the dorm, and it was just always playing. So it was just always, always kind of like having a home away from home, if you would, because it was something that was very familiar and very comfortable growing up. You know that that I enjoyed watching with my uh, my siblings and and my parents. Um, so very fond memories about it. The thing about the memories when, like for example, your experience, Greg, you were watching it, rewatching it. You had a different experience from the first time because you were now revisiting with a family member or an old, old friend or, or, or that gal that you had a crush on growing up. But our, our revisiting was like going back to see an old friend. And that's why this kind of um, family thing, this familial uh, global mesh family, um, people have memories attached to the experience of watching the show that is so, so incredibly touching and moving and in some cases um, influencing as, as in getting a job of being a nurse because they admired nurses in MASH or, you know. Uh, I had um, a letter, it was quite early in the run too, from a woman uh, who said that uh, her dad uh, left them kind of early in his li- in her life and and her mother had nothing and her mother worked two jobs and uh had very little time left over and when she was home was pretty tired from working all day and part partly into the evening and and so she said uh, mom did her best but uh you became my big sister when I watched this show and uh, I became a nurse. I'm married now happily with kids who watch the show with me. So, uh, and it, but the, she, 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 she had a touch of the poet. I'm only telling you the story, but she wrote a beautiful letter about feeling that she could go to MASH, go to the four symptoms because it was her safe place. She called it her haven, her safe place. She felt comfortable with the people, her family. It became her ersatz family, you know, and so and and those thoughts reflect themselves in so many pieces of mail. This feeling I could go there and be safe. I could go there and feel comfortable, laugh, cry. Yeah. You know, uh, cry or tears, and not necessarily negative. Sometimes that is the outpouring of uh, outpouring of a great um, emotion and and positive emotion, good feelings, and um, that's that's quite an exchange that we had with our audience and continue to have. It can be seen as it was like that old joke somewhere. Let's have a drink. It's early now. Nah, somewhere the sun is going down over the yard arm. Well, somewhere, as we're talking right now, somewhere, Mash is on the air oh. and somebody is watching it and feeling they've gone home to the old neighborhood and seen old friends. And, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's a very, special glorious 
yeah. happening. All right, Loretta, you're going to unveil a new jewelry at the International Gem and Jewelry Show to raise money for animal charities in uh, Dulles Expo Center on Friday, May 19th to Sunday, May 21st. May 19th, 2021, correct. Uh -huh. uh, it's, not, um, it's not a line, uh, and um, it's my, chari my charity. And yes, uh, uh, the name of my charity is Sweetheart Animal Alliance. Alliance is the operative word there. So I, um, every, all the monies that, that come in from the art book, I have my second printing of the art book, which contains, I think, something like 70 paintings of mine, watercolors. And um, the sale price is uh it depends if you're getting it on online at 60 dollars. well uh that money to the penny goes into the treasury of sweetheart animal alliance as does photographs that i sign or whatever that i'm, I'm signing um the jewelry and the same will apply my perfume which is um uh, a rounded a bottle that is, they call it a glide. It, it glides on your, your pulse. You, it's a glider. And it's, I'm very proud of it. I love it. I wear it. I, I, I wouldn't try to sell something that I didn't love or use or wear, you know. Uh, and so uh, the perfume will, will be there. It's Sweetheart. And it's available again online at my website, as is the book and now the jewelry it's it's i think going to go further and maybe develop into a couple more items at the moment uh, the necklaces are making their big debut at the gem show Excellent. and people at the international gem and jewelry show are dear friends there's another one of my families and uh, they're very proud about uh, presenting my uh, my jewelry my my necklaces and um, there will be a ring and there will be matching earrings so those are coming there it's a it's a development as as the needs for the animals of our planet that they develop their needs and but we have had major successes too but it covers all all animals all sentient beings because it's not just the little lap dog it is the farm animal and it is our service dogs, and uh, one of my alliances helps bring them back from Afghanistan, for example, and they go into a place for recycling in Texas also, again, an alliance, and, and we need money to do all this. We need facilities to help them. They come back with PTSD. People don't realize yeah. that. It's, it's going to be the same for that animal. We're animals. We, we, we have the same experiences. And uh, only we can help them, too, or do something about helping them. But look what they do for us. They go out there and save lives. Uh, the search and rescue dogs are part of my, my alliance. These, these, these teams, these wonderful guys and girls who take their 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 uh, searchers out, they're, they're wonderful animals, and go into all the um, crisis areas of the world and sniff out people buried under earthquake and or in fires or, you know, uh, they're remarkable yeah. 
remarkable people and, and or beings, the dogs and, and the people, the teams, they're remarkable. So I can go on and on, yeah. but just recently, the guide dogs of Israel are my alliance also. I got a beautiful picture of a, a young man who was hugging his dog, Michelle, her name is, and he was thanking me and my alliances for making that possible. This is the best thing that's ever happened to me. I And now I have a friend and I can see the light through her. And how do I thank you for, in, a, in part, the quote was, do you know the impact you all have made on my life? Well, wow. You know, it doesn't get better than that, that, that this group of activists have helped this man in a country we won't go to necessarily or ever meet him necessarily. And we have impacted his life in a way that is miraculous. So, so um, that's what I'm all about with the charity. So my charity is with our Animal Alliance and, and of, of that alliance. And all of this is in the art book at the last page. Uh, we have a list of the people I help with. Why do we, like MSPCA, two of my rescues that I live with now are from the uh, MSPCA. So so it's um, a wonderful, breathtaking, terrific energy Fantastic. that we have brought to rescue, placement, helping, changing, make, making things better, you know. So I'm, I'm very, very proud of the charity oh my i'm just oh, i'm so yeah i'm proud of you for sure loretta what you've been able to accomplish greg is a huge animal lover uh, is not true greg with what you do for animals as well oh what's that's it is true it is true i, I do love animals no, but very, you, you've done my heart. Raising money too <laughs> so tell us about how you've helped raise money for animals, greg with your dad with your dog I'm sorry, Neil. I, I, you broke up. What'd you say? No, I said you've helped raise money for animals or with for for dog um, with your dog, right? With specific causes with your dog, using your dog to help raise money. Oh yeah, of course. Yeah, we've gone on TV a bunch of times together. Um, so I, I currently, I I have two dogs right now. I have German Shepherd Teddy, uh, who's just an amazing dog. is is the most gentle and most amazing German wow. Shepherd I've ever had, and I've had had a few, and. Uh, people just take to him. So, um, you know, my sister has uh, a couple of Dobermans that are grand champions and, you know, hers, we take to hospitals, uh, to kids, you know, to help them oh, at the yeah, cancer no, wards. Yeah, and the working dogs in hospitals. Yeah. My mom, my mom was at the motion picture home in California and twice a week, uh, a mob, if you will, a herd would come in with their handlers and these dogs they'll, they'll jump on your lap they're, somebody's in a wheelchair you know, they'll jump on your lap and they're licking their faces and i have to tell you the ama have have confessed that this is an irreplaceable medicine they can't do as well with a pill or a drop of medicine these dogs come in and give the love to these people unconditionally you get licked and, and loved and that's it's um, that's great yeah and so it's time for everybody in my charity so that we think it's time to start giving back oh it's well past time and i'm not saying it's 
that we just thought of this idea, but, uh, you know, um, the care and, and enlightenment, really, the, the plight of animals it is, is not a recent thing, but it's been growing and growing, and now it's gotten to a place where we really, really understand 